Today on episode number 363 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Phil Newton is back, this time to talk about evidence-based teaching practices. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Phil Newton is the Director of Learning and Teaching at the Swansea University Medical School in the United Kingdom. He teaches neuroscience and educational theory to students in the school and was the 2015 British Medical Association Wales Swansea Teacher of the Year. He's the Program Director for the Research in Health Professions Education Professional Doctorate Program. His research interests are in the areas of evidence-based education. He's focused in past episodes on academic integrity, and this time we get to have a conversation more broadly about other evidence-based teaching practices. Phil, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. It's a pleasure to be here, Bonnie. It's been years, and I'm so glad that you got in touch And especially because I'm so intrigued by your areas of research you've been doing since we had a chance to talk the last time. Uh, Thank you. It's it's been an interesting journey. I've I've really always been interested in the idea of what how can we make teaching most effective, make support learning for it to be its most effective. And coming from a science background and working in a medical school, taking an evidence based approach has always seemed fairly logical to me. But I learned early on that that perhaps it's not a view that is universally shared. And so the research we've done is to try and to find a compromise way through some of the arguments about that topic. And, and that's where we've got to the paper we're going to talk about today. I, there are so many things that I want to ask you about. So I'm going to try to behave myself. But, but okay. before we really get into this, when you talk about evidence-based practices, how do people gather that kind of evidence? What, what, what's, what's the mechanisms by which we decide if something is evidence-based or not? What are the kinds of things that people do in their research? So that's, that's a really fundamental and interesting question. So, and, and I think it gets to the heart of some of the disagreement between different parties around whether we can even achieve an evidence-based approach to learning and teaching. A traditional view of that would be that you gather evidence by doing experiments and that there are hierarchies of evidence. And so if you've done a randomized controlled trial with control groups and an intervention, that that's good evidence. And then going all the way down to things like case studies would be some of the weakest evidence. I think what we're trying to propose in in the work that we've done is that many different things can count as evidence. And the key thing is whether or not they are useful for you in your particular context and the thing that you're trying to do. And that's the heart of really the, the philosophical approach that underpins what we're talking about, which is pragmatism. Maybe we'll talk a bit more about later. But if you have evaluated something using action research as an individual practitioner, 
that's evidence. If you share that with someone, that's evidence. If you take a systematic review of meta-analyses or randomized control trials, that's also evidence. The key thing is how useful it is, how much it relates to your own context and things like that. I get super intrigued by this idea of our preferences versus what actually happens in reality. And I'm <laughs> I'm trying to think of an example right now because this just happened to me last night where it like it just seems like such a good idea, whatever it is you're thinking of. For me, it might be, you know, buying something that I don't really need, but it just seems like such a good idea and then you don't end up using it as much as you thought you might. And I'm intrigued with that. Robert Talbert is someone who wrote a little bit about this idea between actually what he did was he took an academic article and then made it more conversational on his blog. But, you know, what people's preferences were starting out in an online class about how much they perceived they were going to value these different things versus what they actually valued and used during the class. So I know when we start talking about things that there is evidence for, there's lots we can discuss about there. But before we even get there, what are a couple of really popular theories that really are representative of our preferences versus what actually plays <laughs> out in the reality of what works? So what are what are there a couple of things that they're really evident isn't the evidence for them working? So I think probably the most famous and yet still to lots and lots of our colleagues, most shocking would be the idea of matching instruction to so-called learning styles. It's we've done published a few papers on this. In fact, we submitted a, a new one this morning. And I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with this idea of being maybe a visual learner or an auditory learner or a kinesthetic learner. There are 70 plus different ways that we can classify people. Kolb's learning styles inventory is another one. Honey and Mumford is another really popular one. And what that theory says is that we can diagnose people more or less into one or more of, of a so-called style and that represents a preference for how they learn. And that is a preference. Some of those preferences are more stable than others. But the, where the theory really falls down is then this idea that we should then be teaching people according to their preferred style. And so if you're teaching a class that's been diagnosed as either visual, auditory, read, write, or kinesthetic using the so-called VARC model, then you should develop four different versions of your teaching to match the four different groups of styles in your class. And that really doesn't work. And we've known it doesn't work since the early 2000s. And yet we published a paper at Christmas showing that almost 90% of teachers still believe that it does. And it's, I'm shrugging my shoulders because I, I really don't know what to do about it other than to keep telling people as appealing as it sounds, and, and of course, as you mentioned, we, we all have our preferences and it's very intuitive that if we learned according to our preferences, we might do better. It really doesn't work and we are really all multi multimodal creatures. And that's probably the most obvious example of something that demonstrably doesn't work. You know, it, this hasn't hit me before until you just said it right now, but when you were talking about people developing four different versions of their classes. So I hear this a lot. This 90% figure that you mentioned is not surprising at all to me. I can't think of anyone who ever has subscribed to this point of view who actually then has four different <laughs> versions of the lesson. So it's like, it's, it's, it reminds me, it struck me just as you were describing it, that it's another one of those things that you put back on the learner to figure out 
you know, they took the assessment and then you need to figure out how to make this visual for yourself. You need to figure out how to make it auditory. You know, I'm not going to, I don't have the time to make four different versions of it. So it's, it's versus the things that there is evidence for working, but actually before we get to those, um, there's another one that I just would love to have you touch on. This is such a fun one for me. We've talked about it at least once on the show, but it's been a while. So what about this Dale's cone of learning? I suspect many people have seen it, but you might have to remind them what it's all about. So yeah, Dale's cone is another one that it, it comes from a good place, like learning styles do. It, you know, the people who devise these series are trying to help, but it's been oversimplified, overinterpreted, and and ultimately the way in which it it currently is presented isn't useful at all. So you will have seen it normally as a triangle, and often when we see things in triangles in educational theory, that's a bit of a warning sign. <laughs> um, and this particular triangle is normally organized into types of activity. And it'll, it'll say something at the top, like we remember 10% of what we read. And at the bottom, it will say we remember 90% of what we say and do. And at the heart of it is advocating for active learning, which for which there is some reasonable evidence. But you normally see it sort of with multiple different tiers and you 30% of things that you read and then write down or something like that. And it's, there's just really no evidence for it at all. And yet you see it everywhere. And I, I'm not sure whether I should, I should say this, but I will. I think I could do it in a sufficiently anonymous way. I gave a keynote once at an education conference about evidence-based approaches to learning and teaching. And uh, I was the after lunch slot. And uh, so I was sat in the conference in the morning and there was a technical problem, which meant that I had to go and rewrite my presentation. So I missed all the presentations in the morning. And I popped up on stage after lunch and I started off by uh, advocating for different evidence-based approaches to learning and teaching. One of the first things I talked about was Dale's cone. And I put it up on the slide and said, look, really, this is a lot of rubbish. You shouldn't be doing this. And there was a lot of shifting in seats and looking at floors and daggers coming my way. And it wasn't until after I was done, some 50 minutes later, that I was told that the other keynote, the external keynote from a very well-respected institution um, and an eminent professor in education had used Dale's Cone as an example of something that we should be doing. And again, very well-intentioned, but just shows you that these things are everywhere and they have a certain intuitive appeal. But when you start to pick at the evidence, there isn't anything for them. Now we get to the slightly happier portion of today's show. Yes. <laughs> it is, there actually is evidence for some approaches working. So tell us first about retrieval practice, which if anyone's been listening to this show for any length of time, this is something that comes up a lot. But for people who may not be as familiar with it, what is retrieval practice and what do we know about how it does or doesn't work? So retrieval practice, the basic idea that, well, the simplest way to operationalize retrieval practice is the idea that taking practice, formative or summative quizzes or tests improves learning. And that the it's based upon this idea of the testing effect, and there's an abundance of literature showing that people who take tests in one form or another tend to learn more than people who don't. And the control condition for those sorts of studies is normally people who reread bits of text or rewatch PowerPoint slides or whatever it may be. And, and those are the things that actually students tell us they do when they're asked, how do you study? Well, I read my notes and then I read them again and I read them again. And so when you compare learners who are doing that with learners who read something, then take a test on it, then read it, then take a test on it. Those who take the test do better. Unfortunately, that is often say we say somewhat misunderstood as we need to, to give people more tests, more exams, 
And that's not always a good thing to do. And really, the underlying neuroscience, or at least the cognitive psychology of retrieval practice, is that anything you can do that brings to mind what it is you're trying to learn, and particularly matches what you already know about something with what it is you're trying to learn, that really does help. And there's a lot of good neuroscience that underpins that about the retrieval of long-term memories into working memory and matching new information that's, that's being held in working memory being an effective way to prompt learning. So it doesn't have to be an exam. It can be, you can ask your students to write down everything that they know about a particular topic before you start a new class or something like a, a mind map or the best one, I think, in part because it's, it saves us some effort on occasion, is you ask students to write quizzes for each other. And so the act of them writing a quiz helps them learn. It helps their peers learn. And there's lots of different tools that you can use to do that. And so anything that helps students bring to mind what it is they're trying to learn takes advantage of this principle of retrieval practice. And it's a really simple thing to operationalize. It's been shown over and over and over again to improve learning. I got such a kick out of using the same deck of flashcards where where students would do something on their own to to do retrieval practice. So it was generally some kind of a matching exercise, that type of thing. And then they would come into the class and do something in a group. The, the one I use is called Quizlet. So there's right. a game they can play called Quizlet Live where they're playing against their peers and they're on a team. What makes it unique, it's the only time I've ever seen this, is that only one of them has the right answer. So in a right. team of three or four, they're you know trying to figure out which of us has the correct answer. But to me, that that even doesn't quite take it quite far enough, if this is fundamental to the learning for the class, I had them watch a humorous television show called The IT Crowd. It's a British comedy. I'm familiar with it, yes. Yeah, so great. And and then take, take a first-person narrative approach and write as if you are one of these characters in the episode and use some of the words from the same flashcard. So it's sort of building up, both in terms of smaller stakes or no stakes. The individual practice might be just a tiny handful of points just to get them to do it, but no score as far as right or wrong. The practice was the aim in the first place. And um, anyway, I had, a, I had great fun with experimenting there. The other thing that's so interesting about this one too is that I have found, and so, so many of my colleagues have shared, this is where preferences can really emerge and students can, even from the retrieval practice that research that I've seen can think that it actually works better if I just highlight my notes or reread it or whatever, because yeah. it feels yeah. like it doesn't even when presented with contrary data that says, no, actually, look at this. Look at you. See how you knew more over here versus, over, oh, no, no, but this still works better for me. That's because, you know, it's it's back to that preferences thing versus what works. So I find to me, part of it is because we don't really have as much comfort failing in educational spaces. It's not really celebrated yeah. or embraced. So to, I have to really hone in all the time. They all, anyone who takes any class with me ever, ever, ever knows what retrieval practice is. Even if that's not what I'm teaching, they need to know it because... Remember, forgetting is the friend of learning and remember <laughs> that um, why are we doing this and that sometimes it's uncomfortable and then it helps if I sometimes fail because my memory will fail me sometimes too and they can see me being comfortable with, yeah, this is, this is all, we're not, I'm not keeping track of this, it's anonymous, you're just, you know, we're getting time to practice so that, you know, that deeper learning can occur. So we, we, 
I trialed something in a news class this semester, actually, that, that appears to work very well. One of the things I think that one of these principles that I, I like to, to, to try and use as part of other overall pragmatic approach is to recognize that assessment drives learning, which we're often told is a bad thing. But I think you know, at the end of the day, it's a lot of human nature and let's try and work with it to, to get the best for everybody. So we've built into the class credit for doing retrieval practice. And the way that we've done it is to use this tool called Peerwise, which is a site, I think it's based in New Zealand, where students can log in and write questions for each other. And we give them credit for the class if they've done a certain number of questions. And then they can rate each other's questions, they can write feedback for each other, and they have to write an explanation for the questions that they write. And so far, myself and all my colleagues who've used it have found that the students really do get on board with helping each other and using it as a, re as a revision tool then even once the class is done as they prepare for exams in future classes. So building it into assessment, giving them the opportunity to actually generate the questions themselves seems to be a, a simple-ish way of operationalizing retrieval practice into a, a class. Mm. I know another big one that you have looked at a lot is cognitive load theory as something that there is evidence for. Could you ch tell us a little bit about that? So I, I love cognitive load theory. I'm unabashed in my love for it, in part because I'm a neuroscientist by training. And it's, you know, it's rooted in the biology of human working memory. So we, and I, I'll have to restrain myself because I could talk <laughs> about this until Christmas. <laughs> The neuroscience, I think if, if I was to give or to, to, to advocate to people one aspect of educational theory that would really help everybody have an understanding of how learning works and so to improve it would be to understand the basics of how our working memory doesn't work. So we have three basic types of memory, as I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with. The short-term memory or sensory processing, where we turn light and sounds into the activity, electrical activity in our brain, working memory, which is where we hold information while we work out what to do with it, and then long-term memory, which is where learning goes to be stored. And we have this amazing capacity for learning. We can remember odd things going back many decades, and yet we have a, a really limited capacity for processing new information in real time. And some of the old psychology on this by Miller and Co. said that we, you know, we have maybe seven storage for seven chunks of information in working memory at any one time. And yet, we have to process almost everything that we want to learn through working memory. It's a real bottleneck for learning. And so what cognitive load theory does is say, this is a bottleneck. Here are some strategies to help us account for that bottleneck and work with it and, and manage it as a way of making learning more effective. And there are all sorts of things from cognitive load theory that are quite straightforward to to put into practice so using worked examples anything that gets content out of working memory and into an external scaffold so putting this idea <laughs> interestingly cognitive load theory likes to use very esoteric jargon that itself is difficult to understand so things like temporal and spatial contiguity which is a complicated way of saying keeping relevant bits of information together in time and space so don't have people hold in their working memory things that they don't necessarily need to if you can keep things together on the same page or on the same slide. And then not using, when you're doing, uh, let's say, lectures, 
keeping the slides simple and clear and free from extraneous information that's distracting and unnecessary. Very simple things, but when you ground them in the biology of working memory, actually make a huge amount of sense in terms of helping people learn and preventing them from becoming overloaded. And we've all become overloaded. We've all sat in a lecture where we've got lost. And once you're lost, it's all over. You know, it's very difficult to come back from that. So, yeah, I think there's a lot that we could learn from cognitive load theory. And, and I, lots and lots of great review articles out there by people who know far more about it than I. And I'd, I'd recommend them to anybody. You're reminding me a little bit that there's a methodology called getting things done. It's in the realm of personal productivity. But his evidence for why that particular approach to managing time and tasks and attention is because of cognitive load theory. So his his whole idea is don't don't he's the guy the author's name is David Allen and he says our mind is for having ideas, not holding them. And the idea is if we have some kind of an external system, in my case I have a task manager that I use. And rather than me trying to to remember, oftentimes people will say, you know, how do you have a podcast and you're a dean and you teach and all these things? And, you know, you always want to admit, like, it's not as good as it looks. <laughs> remember, the <laughs> podcast is edited and we're able to outsource. You know, it, I always feel like I want to start with humility. But I do think people misunderstand just it's exactly what you said about working memory. I don't I don't use my working memory to remember at what point there's there's about 15 steps to get through for any one podcast episode but we record at different times and and you had to reschedule cuz you had an issue and so it's how far did i get how could i possibly remember did you fill this thing out did we talk about this did I, did i tell you about the recommend you know it's it's too much to try to hold in our head and once we can get it in a trusted system that we know that that information will be available to us and you said when it's relevant and that everything else kind of gets cleared away. And that really does free us up both for learning, but also in this case for he, I would think of him as freeing us up for the more create creative aspects of our brain, what it does really well, but we get in our own way sometimes. Yeah. And I, so if you, we talk a lot in educational theory about the idea of scaffolding mm-hmm. and really what you've just described is scaffolding for life rather than scaffolding for, mm-hmm. for learning. It's, it's what do I need? All these things that I need, but I don't have to have to hold them in my mind, as it were, at any one time. I can put them outside on this scaffold, and then this very limited space that I have in working memory, I can dedicate to to the things that I really need. And that's in cognitive load theory. That would be having high germane cognitive load. You're focused on the things that you really need to be paying attention to, and not paying attention to the animated GIF on the slide or the the twirly bow tie of the teacher or the fact that you're cold or even some things that we as educators can't keep track of you know if you're hungry or stressed at home those are distractions extraneous cognitive load that we need to be aware of or we can't always account for so before i ask you about communication skills i wanted to ask you a little bit first about where this all lands in the arguments around memorizing things and the importance or lack of importance of it. I mean, and this is a very nuanced discussion, I realize. But but um, where, where, where are some of your thoughts and what's some of your research around how much I as a learner need to be memorizing things versus how much I don't? How would I know to be able to discern between those things as an educator? Where, where do you land in terms of all of that? So that's, that's, that's a really interesting question because it's a very 
common and heated heated-ish topic, certainly in the UK, although a lot of the balance of the discussion tends to fall on the side of we need to be focusing on developing skills and not memorizing facts. And I think I think that's unfortunate because I, I don't I don't think I would be advocating for having all your, your university students sat saying things out loud like um, times tables, but we cannot critically appraise things that we don't have a basic knowledge of. And critical appraisal is the thing that we're trying to get to in higher education, right? It's sort of higher order, working with information, concepts, and learning, doing our own independent thinking about them and appraising them critically. But if you don't know the basic facts, it's almost impossible to do. And certainly in STEM subjects, which I'm more familiar with, we are absolutely up to our eyeballs in facts. And a lot of those facts come with a terminology that is is almost impenetrable. So I I teach neuroscience, that's my day job, and I show students a list of regions of the brain, our medical students, list of regions of the brain that they have to understand, they have to know about, and even the names are impenetrable. So we a common region of the brain we talk about a lot is called the substantia nigra. And it's really important. <laughs> Bonnie's frowning and scowling. <laughs> so it's really important. It's the region of the brain that dies in Parkinson's disease. It's so it, it does a lot of really important things in helping us move and initiate movement and um, coordinate movement and other things besides. And so students have to know about it. They have to know whereabouts in the brain it is, what it looks like, what the, the cells in it look like, and so on. And yet just the name, Substantia nigra, there is nothing in there to help you as a novice learner, understand what that means. And so you you have a page of terms like that and quite straight away you're overloaded. And there's no real way around that other than, than learning the facts. And we can use structures to help people organize that in a better way. So if you had an understanding of the classics, you'd know substantial arguments, black substance, and it's this, it's black in the brain. So maybe that's helpful. And then if you can learn some of the anatomical organizational terms, like what's up and down, what's left and right, what's middle and center, then that helps you with some of the other terminology. But there really isn't any way around being able to understand the neuroscience of Parkinson's disease without knowing the terminology of substantial nigra and dopamine and all these other complicated terms. So it's my long-winded way of saying we do have to learn and memorize a lot of facts, particularly in STEM, but that's no bad thing. Yeah, and I, I always think of these things of it's it's never all or nothing. And so, because, the, the, you know, in working with STEM, it's always, you know, that you don't understand and we have to memorize things because that's our field. And it's like, well, the doctor still goes and looks up your prescription to see if there's any... What is that called? <laughs> Speaking of memory, uh, not side effects, but complications. You know, what medication? Yeah, yeah. They don't have, no human being is going to rely on their memory for all of the drugs that they may prescribe, all that kind of thing. But but then again, you don't want them to not know anything off the top of their head. So it really, uh, and, and I'm, I'm speaking in a domain I know close to nothing about in case you can't tell, but I, I just really think. We're in such a danger zone when we think everything has to be memorized or nothing does. There's, it's got to be some gradient in there. Absolutely, yeah. You you have to know when you look up the side effects what they mean, but you have to know what the, the skill is being able to match the different terminology and the different patterns to the, you know what you see in front of you and making a judgment about it. I think one of the things 
sort of evidence-based tips we can use in any domain that matches to cognitive load theory and our understanding of working memory and long-term memory is to try and make learning new information relevant to what somebody already knows. And that's something that is represented in multiple different ways in many, many different and seemingly disparate learning theories like constructivism makes a great deal about that. But actually, when you work it back, it's it maps perfectly onto our understanding of how the neuroscience of memory works. And even with something like esoteric terminology in, in, in neuroscience, like substantia nigra, if you can say that's black substance, there's not many other black substances in the brain. We know what black substance means. So maybe that's a hook then to help avoid some of this overload by making things stick to things that are already in long-term memory. And it also links to this idea that we hear a lot about, we don't need any facts at all because we can just Google anything. And I think your point, your very pragmatic point about it being all or nothing is really relevant there because it's certainly impossible for, say, a doctor or, or any professional to, do, to Google everything in real time and function. But at the same time, I don't think we should be afraid of saying to our, to our students or even you know, our, our trainee doctors, our qualified doctors, that there's no harm in looking stuff up if you're not quite, you don't have to have it all in your head. You know, if you're not quite familiar, please do look it up rather than try and remember it and get it wrong. You know, it's far better to do it that way. Yeah. Well, before we get to the recommendation segment, I know that you have some things to share as far as some of the fundamental communication skills and there being evidence for their importance. So, yeah, I, I think I am an unabashed advocate for and I guess defender of the much maligned lecture. Again, as someone who works in STEM, it, lectures are very common. We have large class sizes and I think one of the key things that we conclusions we've come to in some of the, the work we've done on evidence-based practice is that we need to be pragmatic about how we apply some of the evidence and pragmatism is a philosophical approach that prioritizes research questions and questions about practice that are useful and i think when we think about teaching from a pragmatic perspective a good lecture can be a really useful way of helping people learn um, plus, it also is pragmatic from the perspective of it being efficient. And, you know, you can get lots of, of people into a lecture theater for a short period of time to, to engage in some useful learning. The key, though, to a successful lecture, and I think a key to a lot of teaching, as I'm sure many of your listeners will, will be familiar with, is good communication skills. And I think there's a lot that's written in considerations of effective teaching about some very complex, interesting, and useful, but perhaps unnecessarily sophisticated techniques, when really if we could start with helping people become effective communicators, then I think we'd be doing everybody a favor, the teachers and their students, because at the end of the day, particularly when we're using techniques like lectures, a lot of it is telling a story with the appropriate arc, with the appropriate visual aids, and the appropriate performance. And if we could help people with that and be unashamed of the fact that that's a lot of what we're doing, then I think everybody would benefit. We've all learned a lot from watching TED Talks and David Amber documentaries, and they are basically lectures, but they're just done very, very well with good communication skills. And boy, that real powerhouse is when we can combine those great Absolutely. communication skills with what we know about retrieval practice, 
with what we know about cognitive load. I, I can see how these are all fitting together <laughs> in terms of, you know, layering them on top of each other. It's not one or the other. It's it's that layered approach that, that at least in my experience, works really well. Absolutely. Really well. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I wanted to share an article that I that someone shared on Twitter. It's called Why Students Do Not Turn on Their Video Cameras During Online Classes and an Equitable and Inclusive Plan to Encourage Them to Do So. And I we've had lots of conversations during this pandemic. I suspect they could even continue well beyond when this is all far, far behind us about, I think it comes from a really good place, us wanting to engage and, and knowing what that feels like, but trying to do a direct copy paste from what we think we actually experienced in the classroom. I would even question the premise of some of the ways that people talk about that. It's, it's as if people think you could measure attention simply by looking at people's faces. And I mean, yeah, I, I do that very naturally. Are they laughing? Are they smiling? Do I have eye contact? All of that. But, and and just that, so it comes from a good place. But then when we g- get in the context that so many people were quickly transitioned to of teaching synchronously online, wanting to have the exact same experience isn't working out really well. And Anyway, I just found this article really fascinating, really good uh, stuff that that many of you have already heard of, but just very research based and ideas for, you know, how to accomplish some of the aims that people are hoping to without some of the real downsides of a blanket, you know, requirement and without understanding empathetically why people might not want to turn their cameras on. And that is something that I, I know for myself, I didn't have a fine enough appreciation for what would be some of those reasons and not, not you know, living in uh, similar circumstances to be able to have the proper empathy that I, I feel like I do now, at least better than I did when all this started. So that's my suggestion is that people check out this article and I'll post a link to it in the show notes and I'm going to pass it over to you, Phil. I know you have some recommendations as well. I, I do. I think I, I'm fascinated to read this article myself because it's certainly something that I I wouldn't say I necessarily struggled with, but it's been up and down for me as I've taught a new class this semester. And there have been times where I'm te- talking to this sea of black squares with a little white text on. Mm-hmm. And uh, oddly enough, the thing that I found really helped me was retrieval practice, not mm-hmm. in a very formal and official way, but you just build in lots of little questions mm-hmm. every now and then. And then students love answering questions, you know, even if it's just a gentle quiz. And then you get the little answers in the chat and then you know they're there. Even if you can't see them and you're just talking to your fireplace, <laughs> you know that they're there. And and I found that really did help me a lot. And then the, the classes where I forgot to put those questions in, I am literally talking to myself for two hours. So I have found that to be so helpful. And then the other thing I have found helpful, it's this, this to me, Phil, is weird that I didn't figure this out or at least be as cognizant of it as I would have liked to have been. One of my approaches that I would go back to so regularly when teaching in a classroom would be to change things up. Okay, now we're going to take out our phones and then I've got this little game or a little poll or whatever. Okay, now we're going to put our phones away. I'd like you to take out a piece of paper and a pen. Oh, you didn't bring any with you. I've got some extra paper with me. I've got some extra pens and and just that, or we're going to go up and here's a sticky note. I want you to write down something and then go up and post it just constantly, both physically moving around the room, or now we're going to listen to something. 
now we're going to be silent for a few moments. And just that constant changing it up, I didn't always think of it quite in that same way. Or maybe I didn't feel like I had as big of a repertoire at first. Because part of it, you were talking about lectures earlier. I think sometimes I'm so hesitant to do the lecture. That's that's not that's not my go-to. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like, no, actually, now I'll find even more freeing to say, okay, for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to be explaining something. So feel free to turn off your camera. If you've got a paper there, you could just jot some things down. I'm going to be talking for about 10 minutes and to feel okay. I don't constantly have to be doing a hundred percent retrieval practice to 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 free that up a little bit, but then to say, okay, if you're comfortable and you're in a place to do this, I'd love to have you turn your cameras back on now because now we're so that's not constant camera on, feeling like the focus is on me. The changing back and forth between that, I I found a little bit freeing as I kind of got in a groove with things in these last six months or so. Yeah, to be, be recognizing that. I guess reflecting on what it is you actually do in a teaching session versus what you think you're doing and, and <laughs> yeah. recognizing that having doing lots of different little things, talking about different things, even even just lecturing on different topics, if you do do a lot of talking, is a, a really important part of that. And it is a lot harder, or at least it's a difficult, been a difficult transition for us, hasn't it? So even just telling students to go take a break, make a cup of tea, and then coming back with your own mug is... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've learned a lot, haven't we? Yes, we have, and so much more to learn. <laughs> so, um, I, we were talking about this before we came on, and, and I, I, when I came on before, I, the thing that I recommended was honestly to get a dog, because it was so helpful to me having a dog as a way of getting myself out of the house, having some free time, some me time, just to think about things. And I thought I can't possibly come on and recommend getting a dog again. But then our dog died and it was a very difficult time as anyone, particularly who's got young children and dog and, and pets will know. And then recently we've got ourselves another dog and it's really brought home to me the importance, particularly in the current situation we find ourselves in as a planet, of being forced to go out, get outside, to go for a walk and just think about stuff whilst chucking a ball for an overexcited spring spaniel. Um, <laughs> and then whilst doing that, I could sneak in another recommendation for, you know, even if it's just listening to a podcast, I, I even though I'm a, a, a UK citizen, I love Radio Lab. I've learned a huge amount from the podcast Radio Lab and, and I'd recommend it to anyone as who just wants a, a, a different take on many of the interesting and controversial things that we find ourselves thinking about as a society. Radiolab has an amazing take on those. So an hour or so with the dog and Radiolab, all will be well with the world. Well, Phil, I'm so glad to have been able to have this chance to talk to you again all these years later. I hope that it doesn't take this many more years for us to get back in touch. I'm so excited about all the things that you're researching and just so engaged by what you shared. And I'm excited about sharing it with the listening community. I'd love to talk to you again soon, Bonnie. And, and to anyone who'd like to listen. Thanks once again to Phil Newton for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to check out the show notes, they're at teachinginhighered.com slash 363. And if you'd like to receive those show notes in your inbox once a week, you can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. That subscribes you to the weekly update, which has the most recent podcast show notes in it. 
and also some other recommendations beyond what we talk about on the show, some quotable words and other resources. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And thanks so much for listening to Teaching in Higher Ed. I'll see you next time.